Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The 2015 session of the Utah Legislature reached the end of its constitutionally mandated 45 days last night. This year's highlights included debates over Medicaid expansion, prison relocation, pay raises for teachers and state employees, the gas tax, anti-discrimination protections for the LGBT community, religious freedom guarantees, the right to die, Utah's caucus and convention system, medical marijuana, and much, much more. Legislature even got into uh, debating over cockfighting and uh, seatbelts, much more. Today we're going to recap the 2015 legislative session with Deseret News commentators Frank Pignanelli and LeVar Webb. We'll also have comments from Governor Gary Herbert, and we'll be talking with Jason Stevenson with the Utah Health Policy Project and Dan Bamas with the Utah Foundation. Before we jump into the legislature, by the way, we want to know what you think. Is there a bill that you are following? How will the laws passed or left on the table affect you? And what still needs to be done? You can reach us at 1-800-826-1495 or on our email, upraxis at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. I wanted to get to a couple of uh, comments from uh, previous shows before we launch in today, uh, shows from uh, this week. Uh, so uh, first up, we uh, had a discussion, as you recall, on dogs and cats, how to speak dog, how to speak cat, a very fun uh, program with the head of the Humane Society in uh, San Diego. And uh, this is what uh, Hillary uh, says. Uh, she uh, wrote back in saying, no one seems to know that cats as well as dogs must be kept on the owner's property. It's not legal to let your cat roam free in Logan. For the sake of songbirds, please help educate your listeners. So there we've done that for you, uh, Hillary. Uh, good to know that. And uh, we had a comment come to my personal email, so I'm not going to put names on this one. I don't know if they wanted it for public consumption. Uh, but these are some listeners in the Uinta Basin responding to a couple of programs we've had recently on climate change. They say, thank you for the radio program on climate change. I would like to make a few comments about uh, climate change. My wife and I have attended 40 straight Klondike Derbies, the Boy Scout winter camp that's overnight, the camp is 25 miles north of Roosevelt. This camp is always held the last weekend of February. Although there's a variation of the temperature from year to year, the first 10 years were much colder than the last 10 years. In the first 10 years, many of the camps had temperatures reach 20 to 30 degrees below zero. In the last 10 years, temperatures have rarely fallen below zero. To me, this is a good example of climate change. So thanks for those comments. Keep them coming. As I mentioned, 1-800-826-1495, upraxis at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter. And uh, we bring on, for reaction to the legislative session, Jason Stevenson, Education and Communications Director with the Utah Healthy Health Policy Project. Thanks for joining the program. Good morning. Good to be here. And we bring on Dan Bamas, who's uh, Communications Director with the Utah Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. And for those of you who uh, think you may have wandered over to KUER, uh, Dan's now with the Utah Foundation. Um, yeah, I joined the Utah Foundation at the first of the year, and I uh, have enjoyed working here so far. Okay, congratulations on the new job. Thank you. Uh, so let me start with Jason Stevenson. Uh, the, the legislature essentially kicked Healthy Utah Medicaid expansion down the road. What's, what's your reaction? Yeah, no, this is... You know, an outcome that we saw coming over the last couple of days, there was a last-minute attempt at a compromise. I believe Senator Shiazawa and Representative Donegan actually did figure out a compromise, um, but uh, Rep. Speaker Hughes decided that the House wasn't going to pass that, so he kind of shot that down. 
Um, that just happened yesterday. It's reported in the Deseret News this morning. Um, and so, you know, we're heading into a couple of months of, I think, additional education, additional research um, that uh, these principals, um, the leaders in, in both the Senate and the House, and from the governor's staff, are going to sit down and, and really hammer something out, if they can, by July 31st. And then if they get a deal, then the, the governor's going to call a special session, I presume in August, although that's a tough month to call a special session, so it could be in September um, that the legislature will come back uh, and spend a day or so uh, discussing and voting on this issue. Uh, so uh, what do you think the prospects are? They set a deadline of July 31st. Uh, what do you think uh, the, the odds are? I think it's pretty good. I mean, if, uh, if, if Representative Dunnigan and Senator Shiazawa were able to hammer out a deal, um, you know, in the last couple of hours of the session, I think there is some movement on both sides. I think there's some flexibility. So over the next couple of months, I don't see the positions hardening. Um, I actually see, you know, some more information being applied to this issue, really looking at uh, who is in the coverage gap, what are the long-term costs and the short-term costs of the state going to be. And, and I do see, uh, especially in the House, where I feel that, um, you know, actually Healthy Utah and, and even Utah Cares wasn't necessarily received very well. Um, I, I think the members are going to get uh, some more information from their constituents and from experts in this field to help them uh, get into this issue a little bit more. There just seemed to be a reluctance to really focus on it during the session. Um, and, and I think now, after the session, um, with this July 31st deadline, there's going to be some renewed interest to, okay, let's just figure this out once and for all. Now, am I, am I right in assuming that, that uh, if this is going to be a compromise, then full Healthy Utah is probably not going to, to pass? You know, our organization and many of the advocate organizations and business and community organizations do support Healthy Utah 100%. We think it is the best deal. Um, and we think that the whatever compromise comes out of it is going to be mostly Healthy Utah. Uh, but we think there is going to be, you know, some extra things added to it or maybe some fallback positions um, uh, if the, the legislature decides not to continue with Healthy Utah after its two-year pilot program, um, that are going to be more like Utah Cares or be more like a partial Medicaid expansion. We think Healthy Utah is going to be the centerpiece of whatever compromise comes out of this. Let me turn to Dan Bomas. Remind us what Utah Foundation does and then what, 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 what has the foundation been focusing on in this legislative session? Well, the Utah Foundation is a public policy research group. Uh, we're funded by business, and we uh, look at a range of issues. Um, in the past, the health care issue hasn't been at the top of that agenda, so it's great you've got Jason on this morning. But um, uh, we have been looking at, uh, among other things, education funding effort. And we define that as the amount of personal income that is dedicated to funding public schools. Um, so it's a different measure than the per-pupil measurement we hear all the time. Um, but our funding effort for public schools has been declining in recent years as a percentage of personal income. Uh, it may be going the other way after this session. Um, we've had an increase of about $510 million, uh, new money going to public schools. And perhaps as importantly, the uh, statewide property tax levy for public schools um, has been increased. It's not a large amount to statewide, $75 million, but it's the first time that's happened in a number of years. Um, this amount of money will be good for a 4% increase in what's called the weighted pupil unit, the per pupil funding uh, basis for public schools. Of course, you heard about the uh, huge rally that they had in the state capitol. 
Um, and that was pushing for a 6.25% increase in the weighted pupil unit, which is what Governor Herbert had originally proposed. But there will be an increase. It's enough to fund student enrollment growth and then some. So that uh, curve may start to tick upward just a bit now. Uh, explain to me the difference between, what you call it, uh, education efforts versus per-pupil spending. Okay, the well, per-pupil spending has been you know, at the bottom of the list for... Uh, a long time, but uh, the funding effort um, in past years uh, was uh, higher on the list. It's uh, dropped in recent years from being in the top ten in the country to being in the middle of the pack or even in lower among the 30s uh, of the states. And that funding effort means the proportion of personal income per $1,000 of personal income, how much money goes to fund Utah's public schools. And we're, we're just getting, after some tough economic times, I believe with this increase, we're getting back to, I don't know what year you could pick, but uh, just kind of making up. Uh, uh, about 1997, actually, yeah. is how long that funding effort has been going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess good news, at least in the short, short run. For uh, yes, education and if system. you're a, a math or a science or a special education teacher, it's even better news. Uh, because they are getting uh, some differential funding to uh, take care of their specialties. They are the, the ones most likely to uh, leave public school employment, and the legislature felt as though they needed uh, some additional money to uh, stay in the classroom. The uh, Despite a surplus, I guess somewhat surprisingly to some listeners, the legislature did, did approve property tax increases to, to pay for some of this. Well, and uh, with a surplus, you have what they like to call one-time money, money that they don't want to appropriate because it might not be available in the basis of state uh, tax revenue in coming years. And so of a surplus of about $700 million, uh, there was a lot of one-time money uh, that they were uh, not ready to commit to ongoing funding. But, um, again, this $510 million dollars, uh, uh, represents uh, an increase in that basis for public education funding. Let me turn back to Jason Stevenson with the Utah Health uh, Policy Project. In the meantime, uh, before a compromise is reached, perhaps it will be by July 31st, some, what, 95,000 Utahns are fall in the gap. That's right. Nothing has changed for them um, from the beginning day of the session to where we are right now. We have no new news or no new you know, help that we can offer. Uh, and these are folks, again, who fall into the Utah coverage gap, which means that they earn too much money or don't qualify for Medicaid because you can still uh, earn money and not get Medicaid. You can earn zero dollars in Utah and not qualify for Medicaid, which is health insurance for low-income people. Uh, but they earn too little to qualify for the subsidized insurance made available through the Affordable Care Act. And there's this huge gap under 100% of poverty. So actually, the most needy of our citizens fall into this gap. Um, and, and there are tens of thousands, between 50 and, and 80,000, depending on how you count it, um, individuals in our state who fall into that gap. Um, programs like PCN, or Primary Care Network, which uh, are kind of a Medicaid waiver program, are actually closed right now to many of them. 
Um, so they really don't have any options uh, moving forward. And, and for those individuals, it's uh, it's really hard news. We've been talking to them over the past couple of days. Um, uh, they were optimistic that something was going to happen. Uh, people started the session saying that they were going to tackle the big issues. This was one that got through. Medicaid expansion in Healthy Utah did not get solved. Um, and so you know, they're going to continue to put pressure on their lawmakers, and we're going to continue to use their stories um, to emphasize the importance of this issue. Affordable Care Act in general in Utah, uh, is it working well, in your opinion? You know, we're slightly biased, I would say, uh, but let's look at the numbers. We've had 140,612 Utahns sign up for the Affordable Care Act in the past two years. That is a huge number, and that's not just in Salt Lake County. In fact, uh, the people who are signing up right now are in Utah County, communities like Lehigh and Pleasant Grove and American Fork. That's where the surge in enrollment is happening in the past year. Uh, so we have quite a few people signing up. We have them signing up from across the state. And here's something really interesting. Most of the people signing up in Utah right now are actually a, a, a significant minority, I would say, are kids. Um, 22% of the Utahns who've signed up for the ACA are under age 18. Nationally, that percentage is 9%. So 22% here in Utah, 9% nationally. Now, you might say Utah has a lot of kids. Um, even if you account for the, you know, the larger, younger population that we have in our state, we're still well over what that should be. So what that shows me is that there are a lot of families here in Utah who are taking advantage of the subsidized private insurance made available through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, and we think that's going to continue to grow as more and more families learn that, hey, someone in their ward, someone on their block, someone in their community got this great deal on insurance. Um, we're going to go out and, and look at that for our family. And, and that's what we're seeing this year. Just a couple of minutes left in this segment. Uh, I want to turn back to Dan Bombas with the Utah Foundation. I wonder, long term, what, what was the foundation's position? Research showing uh, Utah keeps having kids at a, you know, at a high rate, and uh, always near the bottom on a the per pupil spending. Although you've you've uh, brought this the southern measure, are there structural changes we can make uh, rather than you know just year to year increases here and there? What's uh, what's a long term solution? Well, uh, again. Some of that started to happen in this session with the increase in the statewide property tax levy. Um, Utah has a lot of room uh, to raise property taxes. Most school districts in the state people hate property taxes, but that's where there's uh, taxing capability as compared to the state income tax. One thing that uh, might also change is the, um, the provision in the state constitution that was approved in 1996 that allows tax money to be diverted to higher education from the income tax fund. That has basically opened the door for that income tax money to be um, used for many other things because, of course, uh, higher education is funded from general state tax revenues as well. And uh, Senator Niederhauser was hoping to close some of that gap in the current session. Um, there's one other thing, Tom, that I'd like to uh, point out that the uh, Utah Foundation has been studying over the long term, and that's uh, traffic safety. Um, the uh, primary seatbelt law uh, passed, and um, Representative Lee Perry uh, has been pushing for that for a long time. He's a Utah Highway Patrol trooper, and uh, he was very much hoping to see the law change so that you can be pulled over simply for not wearing your seatbelt. That passed. That will become Utah law. Also, the bill that would have changed 
the law on using a handheld uh, cell phone while you're driving uh, was not changed. That was proposed to uh, make it possible to use one touch to answer or one touch to dial, but that failed to pass, and so Utah's current law that prohibits manipulating a handheld uh, communication device while you're driving is still in effect. So a couple of positive steps, you would say, in, in safety. Uh, yes, uh-huh. and, and traffic safety, again, is something that uh, Utah Foundation will have a research report coming out on uh, a little bit later this month. All right. Well, Dan Bomas is communication director with the Utah Foundation. Thanks so much. My pleasure. And uh, Jason Stevenson is education and communication director with Utah Health Policy Project. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having us. Uh, thank you. And uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking with uh, political commentators, uh, Deseret News columnist LeVar Webb and Frank Pignanelli. We'll have some comments uh, on tape from uh, Governor Herbert. And we hope to hear from you. What did you think? 45-day uh, session, session goes by in a blur. Some people say we need to lengthen that out. Others say, uh, good heavens, no, why would we want to do that? Uh, it, anyway, a lot of uh, heavy lifting, as leaders of the legislature uh, say, got uh, got done. But some things left undone. How does that affect you and what still needs to be done? What was your reaction? 1-800-826-1495. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. And uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Legislative recap on this Friday. Glad you're listening. More following the break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. It's not too late to fill out the UPR survey, but don't wait. The survey closes Monday, and we want your opinion. What's your favorite program, or even what station do you listen to most? What would you like to hear on UPR? Have you heard a program elsewhere that you want to have on the station? Well, let us know. The survey takes just a few minutes to complete, and your input will be invaluable in helping determine the future of UPR programming. All you have to do is go to upr.org before Monday and click on the survey link. That's upr.org. Thanks. Who says staying fit can't be fun? Join us on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health for great tips on healthy living, like this recipe for... Tofu veggie stir-fry. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. As a way to recognize the efforts made by its water scientists and engineers, Utah State University is celebrating 2015 as the Year of Water. Tune in throughout the year as UPR's Jennifer Pemberton and a team of reporters follow scientists into the lakes, streams, and snowfields that are the source of our drinking water, our agricultural industry, our stunning scenery, and our world-class recreation. Join us at 9 a.m. on the last Friday of each month for The Source, an hour-long conversation with the people whose knowledge is used to manage Utah's most precious resource. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah on this Friday. We are recapping the 2015 session of the Utah Legislature. The constitutionally mandated 45 days seems like it went by in a blur. It ended last night. 
Highlights included debates over Medicaid expansion, prison relocation, pay raises for teachers and state employees, the gas tax. Uh, we even talked about cockfighting, uh, seatbelts, and much more medical marijuana, and the caucus and convention system, right to die. Many of those topics uh, we covered right here on uh, Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. We're going to recap the session now for the rest of the program uh, with Frank Pignanelli and LeVar Webb whose column appears in the Deseret News. Uh, Republican LeVar Webb is a political consultant and lobbyist. Previously, he was policy deputy to Governor Mike uh, Levitt and Deseret News managing editor. He's publisher of uh, utahpolicy.com. And uh, LeVar Webb, welcome back to the program. Glad to be here. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And uh, our other guest is uh, uh, Democrat uh, Frank Pignanelli. Um, he uh, previously served in the legislature 10 years in the House of Representatives, six years of those as minority leader. He's a Salt Lake attorney, lobbyist, and political advisor. Frank Vignanelli, welcome back. Great to be back. Thank you. I want to start with uh, what's being called historic. It's uh, making national press, and that is this uh, compromise to uh, two provisions on uh, uh, protections for LGBT community. And, uh, and then on a parallel track, uh, religious freedom guarantees. Let me start with Frank Pignanelli. What do, what do you think about this? Well, it is indeed historic, and, and all Utahns should be extremely proud of what happened at the legislature. I mean, it really, it, it obviously, it would not have happened without the uh, LDS Church making the announcement that it did back in January, and then, of course, again with the press conference. Uh, the, the, it still was it still was a fair amount of work because you had to construct a compromise on both what the advocates felt was necessary to protect uh, uh, against discrimination in employment and housing, but at the same time protect the religious liberties. And uh, Senator Urquhart and Senator Adams were just fabulous, of course, worked with the advocates at uh, Equality Utah and Senator Jim DeBacchus. And it, what it shows is that when you have good people working on this, you can we can hammer it out. So it, it and it, it it's something that I think reflects what Utahns for for the most part are, are very tolerant people, and they didn't like you know they didn't want to be uh, burdened with saying just just because we're trying to construct religious liberties somehow we're advocating uh, discrimination. No, I think it it sort of reflects uh, what we all know about Utah. It's a great place to live, and the people are good. And you know, you had these very hardcore conservatives. Uh, voting for this, uh, they were in tears voting for it. And I, in all my years in public service and in lobbying, I never once saw a signing ceremony like that. So it says a, a great deal about our state and our people. Uh, Lavar Webb, uh, the governor did come, uh, kind of a, a, a flourish, I guess, uh, to the uh, you know to the chamber to, to to do the signing. He's previously told me in a in a conversation that it, you know didn't uh, on the religious liberty side didn't give everything that he wanted, but I guess everybody came together, were fairly pleased by this uh, compromise, or the you know the parallel tracks of this. Yeah, it, it was a true compromise, and there's no question that neither side got everything it wanted, and that's, uh, we, we need more of that in government, obviously, to get some of the big issues resolved, but in, in reality, and it does still allow, I mean, on the religious freedom side, it does still allow in limited cases discrimination. Uh, and, and we ought to be upfront about that. But, but the, the ability to discriminate, again, it's, it's uh, very limited. It's only in certain circumstances. And on the other side, it does 
force people in some cases, even if they do have religious beliefs to the contrary, they are not allowed to discriminate. And so it's a true compromise. Uh, neither side got everything it wanted, but it takes care of the you know, 80, 90 percent of the, of the issues out there for, for both sides. But, uh, but it is a, certainly there are parts of that that, that uh, good people can still disagree on, but that's the reality of compromise in government. LeVar Webb, what do you think of uh, House Bill 322, which did not pass? That's uh, Representative LeVar Christensen's uh, bill, which I think would have uh, taken religious liberties uh, guarantees uh, even a little further. Yeah, it uh, you know it, it, it took things a little bit too far, and in light of the the compromise that was made uh, on 296, it it. Uh, uh, it was deemed not necessary at this point, and it did cause a lot of contention right at the end of the session in the Senate where senators were getting a lot of criticism uh, from more conservative groups uh, for not passing that. <clears throat> but uh, they, you know, they stuck with uh, the compromise and did not go, decided not to go beyond that. And uh, Frank Pignanelli, what, what's your opinion on uh, HB 322, uh, Representative Christensen's bill? Well, it was not part of any agreement. I appreciate uh, Representative Christensen's enthusiasm, but it it really was way too far. And there was a deal struck that, that he could have his time in the House to talk about it, but that it would end up in the Senate, and the Senate took care of it. I think what people have to realize is that the what was passed mirrored the non-discrimination on, on the basis of uh, you know race or ethnic origin or, or religion, where it, it applies to businesses, uh, you know, over 15 employees, or to, to landlords with more than a certain number of units, it's exactly the same that we've had for decades for those other categories. So, that, so that nothing was created new that way. It was simply where we're providing sexual orientation into that category. There, the 322 was something that, the, my understanding, and the LDS Church did not support. It was something that was based upon what some very conservative lawyers wanted, and. And, and the legislature handled that in a very responsible way. It gave Representative Christensen a chance to articulate why he wanted it, but at the same time, they didn't pass it. One thing that was being talked about, I think, last year was uh, some revisiting of definitions of marriage, and I think legislators are holding off on that to tell the Supreme Court fully rules. Is that your view of it as well, uh, Frank Pignelli? That is. Yes, yes, that is. That, as you know, the Supreme Court is, uh, is going to hear arguments, and then they're going to be ruling in June. And they just didn't want to have to relitigate that thing uh, before the, you know, in, in the legislative chambers. And they'll see what happens then. Mm-hmm. That'll, that'll be uh, quite interesting, both the Supreme Court ruling and, and legislatures all over will be tackling that. I want to move on to um, Count My Vote, the compromise that was forged um, last year. There were some attacks on that, which were rebuffed. Um, And uh, one comment, for example, Senator Todd Weiler, Republican from Woods Cross, says uh, that we we address this, and uh, if we were to unravel that compromise, it would... uh, would lack integrity. Uh, paraphrasing what uh, what he said. Uh, so starting with uh, Lavar Webb, um, what, what's your feeling on this? Remind us what um, what that compromise would do. I think it would allow for 
open primaries. It also allows for a, a primary system uh, through uh, through getting a number of signatures. Yes, that's correct. The original Count My Vote uh, initiative petition would have eliminated the caucus convention system and gone to a direct primary. And survey research actually shows that's the preferred method by most uh, Utahns. But uh, the, the compromise in, the, in a year ago was that uh, the caucus convention system would be allowed to continue, but there would be a, a dual track uh, hybrid system so that if a candidate did not want to go through the caucus convention system, they could simply gather enough signatures and get on the primary ballot that way. Uh, and so it, it, in effect, it is a, an open, it, it is a direct primary because uh, anyone can qualify to, to get, I mean, obviously you have to be a party member and so forth, but qualify to get on the ballot without having to go through the caucus convention system. So there, there, was a, there were a lot of attacks on that compromise. There were five different bills that were introduced, and the legislature, in their good wisdom, and I I, I'm, I'm glad they rebuffed all those attempts to water down the compromise or kill the compromise. The, the Republican Party lobbied really hard in favor of some of those bills, and uh, but there there were some excellent uh, members of the legislature. Todd Weiler was one. Kurt Bramble was another who really felt that to to renege on that compromise would be the wrong thing to do. The Count My Vote organization was not very visible up on the hill, uh, worked mostly behind the scenes, didn't want to turn it into a bigger co uh, controversy than it already was, <clears throat> but uh, good good wisdom prevailed up there, and, and uh, so we will go forward for the 2016 election under the new compromise. Before I turn to uh, Mr. Pignanelli, I want to hear from the governor on this. I, I reached him on Wednesday. Uh, here in brief is uh, part of what he had to say on this issue on the caucus and convention system. Well, I'm a big, strong supporter of the caucus convention system. It allowed uh, an average guy like me that had no name identification and no money to actually go out and compete against people with a higher uh, name ID and a much larger purse. And so I support the system. It works best when everybody shows up from the neighborhoods and elect delegates that represent their views in the neighborhoods and and not let it go to the extremes on either the left or the right. I think there's uh, wisdom in that uh, process being more robust and having people show up. That being said, uh, the Count My Vote was clearly uh, a process to eliminate entirely the uh, caucus convention system. And the polling numbers showed that the people uh, were certainly supportive if it was put on the ballot to do away with it and go to a, a direct general primary. I have a concern with that because that just kind of turns it over to the rich and famous, and uh, average guys like me can't compete. So that's the governor's comments. He's a, he's characterizing himself as an average guy, and I suppose uh, you know he was plucked from relative obscurity by, by uh, Governor Huntsman to be his lieutenant governor. Uh, but the the point, Mr. Pignelli, is uh, you know caucus and convention allows uh, someone without big name recognition or a whole lot of money to uh, you know to uh, to have a level playing field. 
That's right, and that's why it was formed uh, many decades ago as part of the progressive area, and it worked beautifully, but it doesn't work anymore. I would argue that the delegate system was part of the reason that uh, the Democratic Party is such a small minority because left-wing extremists just used it as a way to batter down any type of, uh, what I would say, appealable candidates, and, and that's why the Republicans were responding. They're nervous about what they saw happening to their own party. I mean, the governor's right. It does provide that. But what's happening is you're getting less and less attendance by people going to their precinct caucuses to elect delegates. And when the, However, when the church came out, and, and, and uh, along with the Orrin Hatch campaign, it got people interested to show up in the 2012 elections, you got more of a moderating influence. But that's not going to happen every two years. And I think we have to look at what was what, what, what's a beautiful theory and what's reality. And I concur with the governor, but that's just not happening any longer. Now, I thought what uh, excuse me, Senator Bramble's first piece of legislation, which was to keep the caucus system, but allow people to 24 hours to vote so people could go door-to-door and solicit votes to vote for a delegate, I actually thought it was a great, a great compromise because it protected the delegate system but allowed for a moderating influence. But that didn't pass muster, and so the, the compromise was struck where you could either get on the ballot through the delegate system or getting the signatures. But uh, Senator Bramble, to his credit, said, okay, a deal was made. We're not going back on the deal. And, and that's exactly what's happened. You know, I pretty much live up at the Capitol during the session, and what was fascinating is watching the, a Republican, you know, this is a Republican state, and having the Republican Party <laughs> challenge this thing. And it, it, it was an interesting dynamic seeing that happen. I still think it's not over with yet. I, you know, you're still going to have challenges from Republican diehards about the count my vote system. And it, 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 it's so ingrained into our political culture that I think we're years from having the issue resolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, LeVar Webb, uh, Republican Party in Utah, is suing, right, to to overturn this. They they say as a party they should have full rights to to handle their their nomination as as they wish. They they are suing, and uh, the court they sued in federal court, and the court wanted to wait and see if anything happened uh, in the legislative session before moving forward on that. So that lawsuit will move forward. They count my vote side feels that they are on very solid legal ground. The lawsuit will be defended by the Utah Attorney General's office uh, with input from the Lieutenant Governor's office. They, of course, are defending the law that was passed. And so we'll we'll see what happens in court. I I would just wanted to go back and respectfully disagree a bit with the governor uh, on on the uh, you know the, the the current system allows someone who doesn't have money to compete and so forth. I mean there there's there's some truth to that, but the reality is big money talks no matter what the political system is. And you saw Orrin Hatch spend five million dollars just to get through the caucus convention system, just just uh, to the convention, <clears throat> and uh, and he blew away all you know less well funded, less well famous. Uh, competitors uh, because he had that kind of money. So money talks no matter what. If you run a statewide caucus convention race, it costs a lot of money. And so money matters no matter what the system is. And and uh, and I so I think that's that's important to know as well. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, more from the Utah Legislature's 2015 edition. We're getting uh, your reaction. We're getting a recap. 
from Deseret News columnist LeVar Webb and Frank Pignanelli. They're with us for another 15 minutes. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. What's the issue foremost in your mind, and uh, how did that fare at the legislature? You can join us on Twitter as well. We're at Utah Public Radio. When we come back, I'll take a little uh, side trip into uh, politics uh, I think my guests won't mind going there. Uh, what to some is uh, kind of a head-scratcher. John Huntsman Jr. is signed on as a chairman of the uh, re-election uh, cam- campaign committee for Senator Mike Lee. Talk a bit about that and uh, prison relocation and uh, some other things following this break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Hi there, this is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come explore the world of Samuel Barber. A brilliantly gifted performer, both as a singer and pianist, Barber's career as a composer was assured when Arturo Toscanini took him under his wing, and the greatest musicians in the world clamored to perform his works. Stokowski, Walter, Ormandy, Metropolis, Horowitz, it's a whole lot more than the adagio for strings. So come explore the world of Samuel Barber with us, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Yesterday, the legislative session closed. We've been talking about it a lot here, of course, on this program, uh, or laws uh, being made. Uh, some issues were not uh, tackled, but uh, but a lot of uh, big things, uh, as the legislators like to call it, heavy lifting. A lot of heavy lifting was done. We've been talking about that on the program. We continue with this, and we'd love to get your reaction at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Desert News columnists Frank Pignanelli and LeVar Webb are with us. I want to direct this first to Mr. Pignanelli. Um, I think it was in the fall, just a few months ago, John Huntsman Sr. called Mike Lee an extremist. And uh, now his son, Governor Huntsman, is uh, signing on to the to help the uh, the Mike Lee reelection uh, campaign. Mr. Pignelli, what's going on here? Well, yes, uh, Mr. Huntsman, and I think if he, you know, I think he would probably thought it maybe would probably retract some of his comments. Uh, but remember, John Huntsman Jr. was always saying nice things about Mike Lee. John Huntsman Jr. had hired Mike Lee as his general counsel, so he had had uh, always had said positive things about uh, Senator Lee. What's even more amazing for your listeners, though, is the other half of that the re-election campaign, Scott Anderson, uh, President of Zions Bank and uh, probably the leading philanthropist and community activist uh, here in the you know state. I mean, just a tremendous leader who had had issues with Senator Lee for a long time. For him to sign on as a co-chair, that's a huge, huge deal. I can't even express your listeners the language that I said when I learned of that, because that's a big deal for Senator Lee. This almost guarantees his re-election uh, and renomination, uh, because uh, Scott Anderson had some serious problems, which means they got him ironed out. And uh, to, to, to Senator Lee's credit, to the credit of his campaign, he, they have put together, you know, the other factions of the Republican Party that had quite, uh, issues with him. Now, obviously, the Tea Party and some of the conservatives were, were fine with Senator Lee and they liked him. 
but uh, those other elements were concerned about Senator Lee. And to his credit, uh, he put that together. I think what they were seeing is Senator Lee, despite what a lot of people say, is actually very, very intelligent and very smart. And and they were, I, I believe that they were sat down with him and realized that, you know, for the purposes of what needed to be accomplished in Washington, that uh, his format. One of the things that happens in Washington that's not happening here, Senator Lee is actually quite respected back in Washington for a lot of the articles he has penned, for the books he has written, and for the statements he's made. He's part of this uh, conference in the U.S. Senate, and they're doing a lot of planning and strategic planning. And so I think he was finally able to bring that to light that, look, I'm not this uh, crazy betrayed to be, but I'm actually part of the solution. So, I, you know, he's done a great job at, at mending fences long before the election. LeVar Webb, uh, the uh, the perception that Mr. Pignanelli just referred to had, has been there, at least, doesn't it? It continues, I think, among some people of, uh, you know, e- extremists connected with the Tea Party, you know, best best friends forever with Ted Cruz, that kind of thing. Uh, now, if you love Ted Cruz, that's a, that's a positive. Um, that problem, perception problem solved, do you think? Not, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe not 100% solved, but... <clears throat> but uh, close to being solved. Uh, I mean, it's part of the rehabilitation of Mike Lee after being part of the group that shut down the government, and, and that was a big mistake. And and uh, I think Mike Lee learned a lot from that. And uh, <clears throat> I think the the campaign committee that he has put together, chaired by those two people, is a signal that kind of the Utah establishment, uh, Utah Republican establishment is is going to support him that they don't see viable alternatives out there. I think perhaps if there had been a clear alternative, someone that could win, uh, then, then this might not be happening. But, but uh, an incumbent is really difficult to defeat. And I think that the establishment has de- decided, you know, it's better to work with Senator Lee and help him understand uh, our concerns and all than try to uh, defeat him. So this is uh, obviously a really big plus for him. Uh, I think it almost guarantees his re-election. And I do think that he's he's uh, changing. I think some of his current appointments to his staff are, are, are uh, mainstream people, mainstream Republicans, smart people, and uh, I don't. I don't think we're going to see him teaming up with Ted Cruz to do uh, crazy stuff like he initially did. Uh, by the way, uh, by the way, just another uh, sort of parenthetical aside into national politics. Um, this is very early handicapping. I don't know if uh, either or both of you gentlemen want to, to jump in and and handicap handicap the race. Is it will it be another Clinton Bush race? to say on the Republican side we're, we're going to see lots of flavors of the month and we're going to see people uh, you know like we like we did in 2012 uh, rise and fall and uh, I I don't know who will be the eventual nominee right now uh, Scott Walker and, and Bush uh, are, are leading uh, Bush has a lot of challenges obviously with uh, more conservative in the in uh, delegates and and uh, primary voters, but so it's uh, it's really early to to know. I I I like either one of those uh, fellows, uh, but.
but uh, on, the, on the Democratic side, obviously, it's going to be Hillary Clinton, despite her uh, current challenges. I think she'll be the nominee. And Frank Pignanelli, there there has been a little bit of heartburn, I, I think I detect, among Democrats that, uh, you know, should Hillary, you know, implode, unlikely, but, you know, um, that, that there's not really a strong candidate on the bench. What do you think? Well, no, I, I, you know, some would disagree, but I think the bench is pretty light uh, for the Democrats. This thing with the email, that, that's, that's, that's going to be a problem because you're going to have a lot of open government people say, wait a minute, did, you know, and for all the reasons I'm sure you, what you've talked about uh, before, what, what it does is it, it guarantees she's going to have a little bit rougher ride in some of the uh, primaries and the, the caucus states for her. But, but again, uh, the pre- in my opinion, the presidency is all dependent upon if the Republicans are stupid or not. If they if they nominate somebody who's unlikable, they're not going to get it. If they nominate somebody who's likable, if they look past the ideology, because this is what they did in 1980, they elected somebody, they nominate somebody who's likable, and and they were able to capture the the, the presidency. They've got to nominate somebody who uh, Middle America, the independents, and moderate Democrats can like, and uh, if they do that. I think they have a real shot because the demographics are working against Republicans in terms of youth, minority voters, and single women. So they have to get somebody that can appeal to those groups. They're out there. I mean, you have a lot of, uh, I think a lot of candidates, the Republican candidates could do it, but they've got to look past. I don't know if George Bush can do that. I think on paper he probably could, but he's certainly not very charismatic. And it, so I think it, so it's going to be interesting what the Republicans do because I think the Democrats, I think, there's not going to be the enthusiasm for the Democratic nominee like there was for Obama this time around. And so it's going to be an interesting dynamic whether Republicans take advantage of that or not, or do the traditional thing and give it to the guy who's next in line. Let's uh, uh, come back to the legislature. I want to talk a bit about prison relocation. We have a little clip from uh, my conversation with the uh, with the governor on prison relocation here. We need to rebuild somewhere, so the question only is where. Are we going to rebuild on the site in Draper, or is there a better location than Draper? I've always said if there's a better location, we ought to find it and do it there rather than build in place. I mean, that's just kind of intuitive that if there's a better location, let's take advantage of it. If we find another location, uh, we can build a better facility that has better programming, more opportunity for us to rehabilitate our prisoners and not just warehouse them. So that's the governor, uh, and it, I, uh, you know, this one was uh, will be further studied. Um, but uh, Frank Pignanelli, there's uh, with a prison relocation, there's always going to be the NIMBY factor, right? Uh, good idea, but not in my backyard. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I've I've had some involvement. I've had some clients who've been following that. The reason why you see a back and forth on this prison is because, first of all, it's a huge price tag. It's half a billion dollars to build a new prison. Plus, you have to deal with all the other issues. I mean, the piece of property could be a great location for uh, you know, a high-tech sector. But what, what you see happening here is a reflection of the general public. They're not sure they want to move to prison. And what that means is, while elected officials and state leaders have said there's some compelling reasons to move to prison, they haven't sold the public yet. 
and and so that the there's a, there's a nervousness. Is this going to benefit a small group of people? Or are we wasting money? Or are we catering to prisoners and things like that? And so that's why you see this uh, the jumping and fits and starts on this is because there is a nervousness out there. And in my opinion, what state leaders need to do is they need to do a better job of reaching out to the public and say this would be the, one of the biggest things we do in our generation is a new prison plus a high-tech sector buildings or whatever, reach out there at the old site, and they need to start educating the population as to why. Otherwise, we're going to constantly we're going to come close to making decisions and pull back because the public's not ready for it yet. And that's why you see happening up at the legislature and in the task force meetings. Uh, there was legislation where the legislature wants to have a final approval for a building site. I think that's great. I think the more transparency and access that everyone has to the information is, is, is the way to go. I think you'll see. I think you'll see a lot of more research and study this summer. However, I'd be surprised if they make a final conclusion because I, I don't, I'm not sure they've gone out to the public as much as they should have. Lavar Webb, uh, just a couple minutes left. What, what, what are your thoughts on prison relocation? No, I, I agree. I, I do think the prison needs to be moved. Uh, I think it's very important for that to happen. It'll be an enormous benefit for the state over the long term. It doesn't have to happen quickly. It, it needs to be over the next, you know, uh, five or ten years. Uh, one of the landmark pieces of legislation in this session was the criminal justice reform by Representative Eric Cutchings and uh, with some, some really excellent, uh, excellent piece of legislation that will result in more rehabilitation and less incarceration for nonviolent offenders. If you, if you merge that with a new prison, uh, with better uh, rehab facilities and so forth, you know, we, we could have a really uh, much better criminal justice system. So the two can go hand in hand, uh, but long term, I, I do think it's important to move the prison. It's going to be hard to find a new location, but it does need to be done. And we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, we're out of time, but uh, keep those comments coming at upr.org, our website. Our thanks to uh, LeVar Webb, who's joined us. Thank you so much. You bet. And Frank Pignanelli, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we may have a special session coming in the summer. We'll uh, see about that. And in the meantime, we'll likely have uh, these political commentators uh, back as the election season uh, heats up. Thanks for joining us uh, today for Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about Verla Jean Miller Farman Farmayan, beloved teacher to many Utah school children, and how one decision to travel set her on a fantastic journey that changed her life. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey Story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In 1945, Verla Jean Miller made a decision to travel to the eastern United States, a decision that would radically change the course of her life. Born the daughter of a beekeeper in Smithfield, Utah, Verla Jean moved around with her family's honey business, sparking a lifelong interest in new people and different ways of life. She put herself through college at the University of Utah and taught fifth grade in Cedar City. Eager to see more of the world, she declined another year's teaching contract and chose instead to leave Utah. Verla Jean's travels landed her in New York City 
as a governess and student at Columbia University Teachers College. One night in 1952, she skipped class to attend a play. Next to her sat a man, Monashere Farman Farmayan, who was a prince from an old Persian royal family. The two soon married and moved to Iran. For Verla Jean, living in Iran would prove to be both a geographical and cultural journey. Iran was adjusting to social and political changes resulting from a recent military coup. Verla Jean's new family was large. Some were Muslim, others were not. Some of the women wore the traditional chador, others were more westernized. Verla Jean struggled with the expectations for women and with the Persian language, but enjoyed Persian food, art, and literature. She also worked, helping the queen with her charities, teaching English at the Iran-American Society, even leading a Girl Scout camping trip to the Caspian Sea. In 1955, Verla Jean and Mana had a daughter, but eventually decided their differences were too great and separated. Verla Jean raised their daughter in Holland before returning to Utah after 20 years of international adventure. She also returned to teaching fifth grade and inspired a generation of students until her retirement at 73. Verla Jean had come full circle. Her journey from Utah and back was filled with a richness of life few can rival, and all from one fateful decision to travel. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Tak. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. UPR would like to congratulate USU Electrical Engineering Professor Sanghamitra Roy and USU Social Work Professor Terry Peake for their awards granted by the Utah State University Center for Women and Gender Studies. Roy received the Early Careers Award given to a woman in the first eight years of her professional career, and Peake received the Lifetime Achievement Award. UPR congratulates Roy and Peake for their recent awards granted by Utah State University Center for Women and Gender Studies. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic. Practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial plastic and reconstructive surgery. And offering hearing aid services with audiologist Dr. Spencer Tishan. 753-7880. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Stay with us. The time now is 10 o'clock, and Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming up next, followed by a performance today. <laughs>